On this edition of the program, we are going to give you a little something to listen to while there is a debate and vote to vacate Kevin McCarthy. All that is happening as I record this, but since a lot of this information is about the lead up to that, well, we got to get it out right now. So here we go, a PX3 episode, not only about some stuff that isn't happening in Congress, well, at least not happening in the House, it's about the brand new senator to California, and a little bit on McCarthy that may or may not be out of date, (laughs) not but an hour after we release it. But here you go. Uh, Bill shares here. Let's get going. This is made possible by Oh Them Bones, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, and Craig. everybody to the politics 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 program for wednesday october 4th 2023 year old pal justin robert young joining you from austin texas good to be with you as always we got a lot of moving pieces in dc right now and one piece that is moving to dc is a big one one of only a hundred minted the new junior senator from california is LaFonza Butler. Dianne Feinstein, unfortunately, shuffling loose this mortal coil last week. That means Gavin Newsom has named both of California's senators. And it's a little controversial. We're going to break it down. Not only where this is politically, because by the way, there is a currently ongoing primary for Diane Feinstein's seat. We're going to tell you a little bit about Butler herself and the organization that she's coming from, Emily's List, which is a name you might have heard a lot, but I didn't understand. And I think you guys are going to really get something out of this unless you are extraordinarily well versed in Emily's List. So let's start here the race itself. Dianne Feinstein said about a year ago that she was not going to run for her seat again. Obviously, that proved to be wise as she is no longer with us. Named on the Democratic side because, well, come on, it's California. It's going to be a Democrat. Are three nationally known California Dems. Barbara Lee, 77 years old revered by the anti-war effort because she was the lone vote against war authorization as we were going into Afghanistan post 9-11. A tough vote to take at the time, a lonely position, and yet the world has become more like Barbara Lee than Barbara Lee has become like the world. And so she is looked at as somebody that is very, very stalwart. Katie Porter, a rising star. In progressive circles, if you are on any kind of social media that tends to tilt left, then you have almost assuredly seen Katie Porter with her props and signs designed to make interrogations of various different government witnesses all the more interesting and exciting. And of course, Adam Schiff, a man who was on the Intelligence Committee during the Trump administration, a chief antagonist during those times, and an acolyte of Nancy Pelosi. All that is going to come back in a second. The most recent poll of this race has it as follows. Lee, 8%, Porter, 15%, and Schiff, 20%. But that has bounced around a lot. In fact, Schiff and Porter have gone back and forth with leads, and then there's an outlier earlier this summer where the Republican had a one-point lead. But I don't take that particularly seriously. And so it is with that backdrop that we go to an interview on Meet the Press. You listen to this first. If you are a PX3 extra subscriber, if you're at the $3 level, you heard this the day that it aired 
on Meet the Press. The final show of Chuck Todd. Gavin Newsom is his guest. Gavin Newsom says that his goal is to name a caretaker should he have to replace Dianne Feinstein, somebody that would not upset this currently ongoing primary. In her office. Sounds like you hope you don't have to make another appointment. No, I don't want to make another appointment. I don't think the people of California want me to make another appointment. Because you'd end up appointing both seats. Yeah. Yeah. and And I don't think that's, you know, um, that said, it's my job. It's my responsibility. If we have to do it, we'll do it. Uh, you going to abide by your pledge? Yeah. It, interim appointment. I don't want to get involved in the primary. So no, you would not appoint anybody on that is, that is filed for this race? It would be completely unfair to the Democrats that have worked their tail off. That primary is just a matter of months away. I, I don't want to tip uh, the balance of that. But you're going to abide by it. It would be a, essentially a caretaker, an African-American woman. Uh, we hope we never have to make this decision, but I, I, I abide by what I've said very publicly on a consistent basis. Yes. Of course, the previous promises that Gavin Newsom has made about this seat are chiefly that he would name a black woman. This comes after people criticized him for not naming a black woman to the Senate when Kamala Harris went from the Senate to the White House. So. That second promise to name a caretaker became something controversial amongst Barbara Lee's camp. Barbara Lee is a black woman and Barbara Lee's camp said, well, why don't you just name Barbara Lee? Easy peasy. Lemon squeezy. And more specifically, they made the point that if you named a caretaker, a black woman as a caretaker, it would be an insult. Mind you, Barbara Lee, for whatever her reputation, is indeed 77 years old. And we are just getting out of a long conversation with Dianne Feinstein about how old is too old in the Senate. Although Feinstein was obviously 90. So that's what the state of play was leading into this weekend. And on Sunday, Newsom's office said that he would not put a litmus test on his nominee running again. Many thought that in the age of Justin and the boys getting together, well, it's gonna be Lee. But no. Instead, it was LaFonza Butler, a 44-year-old gay, black, union organizer and political strategist who lives in Maryland? And Newsom just gave her the green light to run for the seat? And she comes from Emily's List, an organization designed to raising money and electing women to the Senate and the House. So before we get into Emily's List, let's walk a little bit backward onto LaFonza Butler's origin. Prior to her appointment, Butler did serve as the president of Emily's List. She has a background in labor movements and is a Democratic campaign strategist. She had a notable role as the senior advisor to Vice President Kamala Harris during her 2020 presidential campaign, although that's not exactly something you would lead a resume with, considering it didn't even make it to Iowa. Butler began her career as a union organizer and went on to serve as the president of the California SCIU State Council from 2013 to 2018. During her tenure, she represented a large number of nursing home and care home care workers through California. Her political involvements extended to her role as a member of the University of California Board of Regents. She also spent a brief time at Uber and a little bit longer at Airbnb before she gets tapped for Emily's list. And so for Butler, the question has to be, do you get into this race? Are you ready to run for a seat you didn't know you were going to get until Sunday night football? And when you're thinking about that for LaFonza Butler, you have to say, well, You know, how often do you get to run as a sitting senator, especially in a state like California, where you're checking a lot of 
the identity boxes. California cares about identity. Obviously, the governor considered her because she was a black woman. She is history. Democrats love history. A black gay woman. Would California voters vote out the first black gay woman to represent their state? Now, on the other side, this is not a... One does not simply walk into Morador, let's just say. You need to be prepared. need to understand how this goes. Well, Butler is tight with Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris won statewide in California a couple times. She's coming from Emily's list. So let's get into the Emily's list of it all. I'm going to read. This is how Emily's list describes themselves on their own website. Emily's List is the nation's largest resource for women in politics and works to elect Democratic pro-choice women up and down the ballot and across the country with the goal of fighting for our rights in our communities. Our work is centered around the fundamental vision, run, win, change the world. Emily's List has raised $850 million in in the service to that vision and has helped Democratic women win competitive elections by recruiting and training candidates, supporting and helping build strong campaigns, and researching the issues that impact women and families. Running one of the largest independent expenditure operations for Democrats and turning out women voters to the polls. Since our founding in 1985, we have helped elect the county, the country's first woman as vice president, 175 women to the House, 26 to the Senate, 20 governors, and over 1,500 women to state and local office. More than 40% of the candidates Emily's List has helped elect to Congress have been women of color. So first things first, dear listeners, there is no Emily. Emily is an acronym for early money is like yeast with the unspoken predicate to that sentence being it makes the dough rise. This is according to them. It has been from its founding a shockingly pragmatic organization with a simple goal. Recruit women to run for office as a Democrat, train them and give them money to establish themselves. And let me just say, I, I just read that Newt Gingrich book about the, the Republican rise to take Congress. And one of the things that Gingrich talked a lot about is developing a system for Republicans to know how to run. And the way that Gingrich did it, knowing that when you are a House candidate, you spend a lot of time in cars, was putting instructions on books on tape. And I don't know if Emily's List does this, but I do know that based on somebody who has thought maybe more than anybody that likes to talk as much as he does in Newt Gingrich about electing people to Congress, electing people to the House specifically, training untrained candidates is huge. Early money in those races is very, very big. And Emily's List does both. And it seems like they're doing it better and better. Emily's List became a true financial powerhouse after 2010. Old promotional material makes clear that it was then-President Stephanie Shiriak, the old president of the PAC who doubled the lifetime raise of this organization from 300 to 600 million by 2016. At current count, that's up to 850 million. But the organization does have roots. The first big moment that put the organization on the map was the year of the woman, 1992, when more women were elected to Congress than any previous decade. One of those women became Senator of California, Dianne Feinstein. Well, let's go back to Stephanie Shiriak. Here she is on C-SPAN's Washington Journal in 2012, describing the organization and listing a few of the women that they are excited about electing this coming fall. As you will hear, a few of them have stuck around voters this November. Let's look at the Emily's List PAC campaign contributions in 2012. And you can tell us about uh, the PAC in a moment. Total uh, receipts over $15 million have come in. Uh, total spent over $13 million. And then uh, $3.4 million 
have come into the pack from individual donors contributing over $200 or more. Tell us about the money coming in and the money going out. Uh, absolutely. As I said earlier, EMILY's list has doubled in size in the last year. We've just crossed over a million members. And those members across the country have really stepped up uh, in giving, whether well, it's a $50 contribution, a $100 contribution. Uh, we have seen an increase of money going directly to our candidates. You know, much of what Emily's List does is we're a national network of women and men who care about electing pro-choice Democratic women. And in that, our support, it really much of it goes directly to campaigns. Uh, we call it bundling, and we, we get those $50, $200 checks directly to those campaigns, and that has been also an increase this year. Uh, and we expect that to continue all through 2012. And who are some of the candidates that Emily's List is especially excited about, that mm. you're pouring money into the races of? Uh, you, the list is longer and longer. As I said, there's a historic number of women running for the United States Senate. We are uh, working with 11 specifically, you know, from Maisie Hirono in Hawaii, who's a congresswoman out there who's running a great race, to Elizabeth Warren in Massachusetts, uh, Tammy Baldwin with, with, in Wisconsin. The list goes on and on. After the very successful 2020 cycle, Shiriak left Emily's list. Her replacement was LaFonza Butler. So here's what we know for sure. If this is the beginning of Butler's career as a politician, she's going to have access to money. Will it be enough to play statewide in two of the most expensive media markets? We don't know. The Emily's List donor network, by all outside indicators, seems to be as strong as ever. But also, it would appear that the man who named her to the Senate, plucking her from Maryland with no elected experience to become an incumbent woman of color in California, about the biggest head start any candidate without a record could possibly hope for. Well, you know, a move like that could certainly shield him from criticism about running against the first black female vice president for president in 2028. It would certainly make inroads with some of the Emily's List donor network. And it would come at the cost of another California power dynasty headed by Nancy Pelosi, who desperately wants Adam Schiff in that seat. It would be a pretty bold move for Gavin Newsom. Or is it just him covering his tracks, as we're going to hear from our guest Bill Share in but a few minutes? Here's what we know. Butler has said that she will not make a decision on whether or not she's going to run until after Feinstein's memorial on Thursday. But here's my guess. If you're not going to run, then why do you let this question linger? Why do you leave it out there? Why don't you just say, I'm happy to be here. I'm very excited. It is an absolute honor to be named to this position. I'm 44 years old. I got a lot of years ahead of me. I don't even live in California. Why do you do that? What does it benefit you? Because the other side is, why not? You got access to money. The other candidates are either too old or not particularly likable. You've got a chance to be an escape hatch. Maybe next November, it'll be Lee, Porter, and Schiff looking up at the stage with the confetti falling, saying, the butler did it. This is your update. TakePoliticsSeriously.com is where you support this program. And folks, news is moving fast. You are going to want that $3 subscription for less than the price of a cup of coffee each and every week. If you'd pay me, if you'd buy me a cup of coffee so I could talk to you, 
each week, then you get two bonus podcasts. And and the way that this stuff is moving, holy moly, you're going to want it. Take politics seriously. That's where you can make that happen. We got some money troubles for old Tim Scott. Amid challenges in gaining traction in early primary states like Iowa and New Hampshire, Scott's campaign is urging donors to remain supportive until the South Carolina primary, where they believe Scott has a stronger chance. Mike Johnson, a top campaign advisor, emphasized the strategic importance of a win in South Carolina during a call with donors following a debate where Scott showed improvement. That's one way to put it. Improvement. Some might say it was curtains. Despite this, Scott's national polling remains low. The slight bump in Iowa and New Hampshire, but trailing notably behind former President Trump and other GOP rivals. In a bid to bolster his chances, Scott's campaign is focusing on boosting his numbers in the early states while also gearing up for an enhanced campaign strategy in South Carolina. Marked by increased events and fundraising efforts, the campaign displaying optimism underscores a localized approach over national ad campaigns, hoping a strong performance in South Carolina could significantly alter the race dynamics. Guess what? You ain't making it there. Timmy, baby, look, it's over. It's done. You know, you're going to be lucky to make it to Iowa. Iowa's your only shot. This is the thing. When people talk about this, like, oh, make it to South Carolina. You have to understand the pressure's high now for someone like Tim Scott to drop out. It's high now. How long is it going to go when you have the repeated failure after failure after failure? And that's what it's going to feel like. Iowa, New Hampshire. Remember that Joe Biden was... Almost dead. He needed South Carolina to get back into it, but he was looked at as a national polling favorite. Tim Scott is nationally and he's locally. Now, if you wanted to pull up all your stakes, he wanted to just say we're running in South Carolina. You'd be reminiscent of Rudy Giuliani's Florida first strategy, but at least it'd be something. But you are running in those other states and you haven't been able to catch fire anywhere. And let's be honest. This is Trump's world and everybody is orbiting. And, you know, Scott, Scott isn't Mercury. okay? he's he is a cold, small planet somewhere on the outer rim. Hunter Biden has pled not guilty to charges concerning concealing drug use while purchasing a firearm. This as House Republicans intensify their impeachment inquiry against his father, Joe Biden, attempting to link the misconduct. The arraignment follows the failed initial plea deal, which would have seen Hunter entering a diversion program. Special counsel David Weiss charged Biden with two counts related to failing to disclose drug use during a weapons purchase and an unlawful position of a firearm while addicted to a controlled substance with the serious charges carrying 10 years in prison and a quarter million dollars in fines. This development coincides with GOP lawmakers' accelerated probe into President Biden, although their effort faces setback as some witnesses claim insufficient evidence for impeachment. Weiss also hinted at the possibility of bringing forth additional tax charges against Hunter Biden in other districts, amid ongoing investigations, highlighting a complex, unfolding legal and political scenario. A reminder that these gun charges only became viable when Hunter Biden himself clarified the timeline of when he was addicted to drugs in his recently released memoir. Hey boy, a lot of Hunter Biden legal stuff in the offing, but... Not before somebody else's bigger legal stuff. Donald Trump confirmed that he will indeed testify in a civil trial in New York City. Attorney General Letitia James is seeking $250 million in fines, a permanent ban against Trump and his sons, Donald Jr. and Eric, from running a business in New York and a five-year commercial real estate ban against Trump and the Trump Organization. The Attorney General is claiming that the Trump organization serially misstated 
its wealth. Donald Trump obviously incensed about this, saying it's a scam and a diversion and that Letitia James is crooked and only out to fulfill a campaign promise to get Trump. This is going to get a lot of attention. Donald Trump is in the courtroom. I have made mention that the Donald Trump court cases are, and and we have a lot of them, two of them at least will be televised or will allow cameras in the courtroom. It's the Monica Lewinsky scandal plus OJ, to put it in 90s terms. And it's going to go all year long. And that is your update. TakePoliticsSeriously.com is where you support this show. Very excited to have you there. Come on in. The water's fine. Take politics seriously. Dot com. Three dollar level gets you two bonus podcasts each and every week without fail. And now back to the show. Kevin McCarthy, a speaker on the brink. We need to bring in one of our favorite minds of all things politics, but more specifically, D.C. from Washington Monthly. Our old pal Bill Share is back. Welcome back to the show, Bill. Great to be back with you. I want to talk all about the chaos in Congress because uh, of uh, thankfully, you know, every once in a while, the Lord provides. And in this this uh, uh, very, very. A, a paltry haul of a primary season. At least we get a lot of intrigue here on Capitol Hill. Uh, we'll talk about McCarthy and Gates and the Democrats in a second. But what we just covered on the show is the appointment of LaFonza Butler to the Senate. Uh, Gavin Newsom now having appointed both of California senators. And it comes at a bit of a late stage if Butler is going to run, which she has yet to announce. I mean, obviously, she just got named less than 48 hours ago, but she's going to have to make a decision really quickly. So let me just get your top line thoughts about uh, Senator Butler. Well, I think it it strikes me as a safe choice for Newsom. Uh, I don't think she is well positioned to run on her own. Okay. Uh, And by doing, and and so presuming that she is a caretaker Senator, he doesn't put his thumb on the scale in the primary, which is already pretty hotly contested. Yep. Uh, So, and he fulfills the promise that he made to appoint an African-American woman to the position. If it so became Vacant. Uh, I, I think the complaints from the Barbara Lee crowd that it should have been her, uh, that that would not have been a wise choice for Newsom to make because then he's essentially short-circuiting the primary. So he needed to fulfill his promise while getting in the middle of the primary. I think that is the safest course of action for him. And if it so happens that this person does run and win, you know, sort of so be it. I don't think... Uh, Newsom would pay a penalty for appointing someone that people really liked and then elected in a primary. I mean, that would also be uh, a a gold star for him, too. So I I don't think he really loses either way. But she's going to have to make a decision to run before people even really get to know her. Right. I mean, this this, this primary is in on on March 5th. Yeah. Again, it's it's not like being the Senate candidate from North Dakota and you have to, you know, shake a bunch of hands in Fargo in order to be well-known in the state. California is one of the most, if not the most expensive media market. It's not a retail state. No. Air war state. Uh, You already have candidates there with, with decent sized war chests, particularly Adam Schiff. Uh, It would not be so simple to run. Now, maybe her thinking is, you know, what do I got to lose? I mean, either way, I, I throw my hand there. And if I get in, great. If not, I'm I'm back to where I would have been at the end of the term with still a senator line on my resume. Uh, but I think it would be pretty awkward and messy 
for her to get in that scrum uh, on a whim without really having the the apparatus to fund a proper campaign. Would the president of a massive bundling operation like Emily's List not be the kind of financial firepower that you would need to fight for a race like that? I I don't think they could put together. Uh, I mean, you're, you're you're talking tens of millions, maybe even a hundred million. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know off the top of my head how much Ship has. I know, I know Ship has the most. Bend. Yeah, I'm not sure how much he has. He, right he, now. he just announced a six point four million dollar quarter. So he is uh, obviously going to be the most well-funded candidate in that race between Porter and Lay. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it's a lot to ask to, to be done quickly. Uh, and you, know, you would get into uh, I, I, to the extent that people might want to have an African-American more in the race. Now you're r- bumping up against Barbara Lee. And then there's that whole debate. Well, why should one African American have to stand aside for another African American woman? I'm not trying to adjudicate that. I'm just saying you'd have a lot of fraught politics involved without really being prepared. Uh, So you you could really belly flop. Is my point. I mean, we have you know at the the presidential level, we have example. We have us talk about let's draft Glenn Youngkin to save us from Donald Trump from a handful of donors. But as I think more people people realize, when presidential candidates go in late like a Rick Perry or Fred Dalton Thompson or Mike Bloomberg or Wesley Clark, uh, they often belly flop because if you're going to come in late, you got to hit every single mark. There is yeah. no room for error because that spotlight is on you in a huge way. And I would think better for Butler to just have a nice, calm year and a half as senator, cast some votes, make some nice speeches, and set herself up for the next big thing down the line. I mean, I, mean, I, I understand that uh, the California, a lot of California slots are kind of spoken for, if you will. Yeah. Governor's running for governor. Uh, you're going to have two young, you know, Alex Medea is a young senator. Uh, whoever wins uh, this Senate race will just be starting out. So it's not going to be that simple to move up to the next big thing right away. But I would think she will have a cleaner name staying out of this scrum and just making a national name for herself being in this position for the next year and a half. That That's what I would recommend to her if I was yeah. in her inner circle. And I think is the rational course. The counter to that would be how many times do you get to run as the sitting Senator of California without any counter. political experience? Um, you know, it, 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 it's a, it's a high risk, high reward path to take. Yes. When, when your ducks aren't really lined up. And that's to to me, I kind of feel like if this were a caretaker position, you announce it when you get sworn in. And well, and then the fact, the, what, fa- the fact that, that Gavin's Newsom's intention for it to be clearly a caretaker. And then Barbara Lee screwed that up by saying it would be somehow insulting to name someone as an explicit caretaker. I mean, which yeah. has never been the case in the course of you know, uh, Senate vacancy history. Yeah. Uh, uh, no one got mad that, uh, I think, I think Deval Patrick, you know, named Mo Cowan, African-American male to be caretaker Senate in Massachusetts. There was no sense of insult for him doing that. Um, but Barbara Lee put that out there. Gavin didn't want to have an argument about it. And so he just said, Hey, look, I made the appointment. The, I, I did the subject is I did what you Barbara Lee asked me to do. Yes. Or it's not you. So, so that, so that's, that's you how you read it. that. You, you, you read, you, you read the lack of a litmus test more as a response to the fact that Barbara Lee and her team were uh, mad about the idea of a, of a caretaker, a black woman as a caretaker, than a sign that, that there is going to be a, a campaign from LaFonza Butler. I think that it, that is my that's your read ninety nine percent take. Yeah, but being that once you say there's no caretaker condition, I mean it literally is a one person's decision, Butler's to decide whether yeah she goes forward or not. And it's a weird race, you know. It's a jungle primary, so you know you don't have to beat everybody on the Democratic side. You just have to finish in 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 the top, and top and then two. you. And then you move on. So you wouldn't have to beat Schiff. You would just I mean, have would to beat Porter and Lay. For going in, but Butler could say, hey, look, I, I can get top two. 
yeah. I can, I can drag myself off the finish line and sneak in there, and then I can raise more money for the general. And now it's Adam Schiff trying to unseat the first black gay woman senator from California. Right. It just, it, you'd have to not make any mistakes. Which is going to be hard. Jumping in. Going to be and hard, it, especially as a political novice. Than it looks. Yeah, and and look, uh, Schiff is backed by the the Pelosi dynasty, so uh, uh, that's that's going to be hard. Uh, you know that, that nobody knows that state like Pelosi knows that state. Well, I mean, well, Schiff and Porter and Lee. I mean, their backgrounds are different, their resumes are different, but they've all had some experience in a scorching hot spotlight. Yeah, uh, none of them are amateurs, uh, and and just brothers has never had to do it. Uh, and you know, one gaffe when you're the late entry could sink the whole campaign. Although none of them have won statewide, right? So that would be that would be the other side on on for for the the go ahead and do it is that it's not like you're running against you're running against people that have national profiles. So obviously they're going to have name ID, but you're going to have nothing but name ID over this next three months when all eyes are going to be on you as the new incoming senator and in a very very close Senate. But they all have, but Schiff and Porter and Lee all have national networks in 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 certain ways. I mean, Schiff has been sort of the lead uh, Trump antagonist, literally, yep. you know, faced down a censure motion uh, in in the House uh, because he was on the Intelligence Committee during the Trump presidency. Katie Porter had made a name for herself as a withering uh, interrogator uh, yep. and uh, economic uh, populist uh, idea generator. Barbara Lee was the lone voice against uh, supporting the uh, Afghanistan war resolution after 9-11, yep. sort of a lonely voice, took tons of heat for that. A lot of the anti-war crowd nationwide has always respected her for that. So they, they've been in the crucible. They have fans nationwide. And Butler is literally a name that almost every person in California did not know about until, until a couple of days ago. Monday morning, it's yeah. Just, it's a lot to ask someone to take on on, on, a, on as a spur of a moment decision. Yeah, it is going to be very, very interesting to see going forward. But let's talk about what's happening in D.C. Jeez, Bill, this one developed fast over the weekend. Uh, the the battle between Kevin McCarthy and Matt Gates is nothing new, but it has certainly evolved into the formal uh, motion to vacate last night before we get into the survivability of that for Kevin McCarthy, what were your thoughts on how things developed over the weekend of uh, uh, fire alarm and all? Well, the fire alarm I think is not, you know, the, the main, the main story here, but look, McCarthy has shown me that he is willing to take political risk in order to prevent the federal government from falling apart yeah, and prevent the economy from getting torched. I mean, we, we saw this with the debt limit deal in the spring uh, where he was quite willing to set aside whatever kind of promise formal or informal he gave to get the gavel, which, uh, which Gates is trying to hold them to say, so you, you essentially promised you were going to push for a 10 year balanced budget plan, which would be totally draconian and never go anywhere in the Senate. Uh, McCarthy said, we don't need to have a debt default, a global depression because by our uh, uh, unrealistic demands, he never pushed that on Biden. He bargained in good faith from the get-go, and they made that deal in advance of you know the midnight hour. Yeah. Uh, and now this past weekend, uh, when it seemed like you know, I mean, I think McCarthy generally tries to start with a unified Republican position for negotiating leverage purposes. That's what he did with the debt limit deal. You know, yeah. got the Republican bill first to see how that would help him negotiate with Biden. He tried to do that in this case to keep the government open, couldn't get the full Republican conference on board. And at the last minute said, all right, you gave me nothing to work with here, but we we can't have a shutdown. I thought, I mean, I I, I, I sensed that McCarthy didn't, wasn't a shutdown guy. Yeah. But I thought perhaps he 
would feel like, okay, I got to do it for a few days before I part with the Democrats just to say I tried everything that I possibly could. But he was like, I don't want it for a minute. I don't want one minute of shutdown. If that means putting on a bill with Democratic support, so be it. If that means Matt Gates tries to fire me, so be it. There's a certain amount of moxie there on his part. I mean, there's plenty of things I could say about McCarthy that are not so laudatory. I'm not saying he's been yeah. uh, a, a paragon of democracy and and, uh, and, uh, and honesty. But in this regard, he has shown uh, responsibility. Uh, and I would be surprised, I'm not saying it can't happen, I would be surprised if he can't find enough Democrats to save his speakership because it is in Democratic interest to not have shutdowns and to not have debt defaults. And a Gates-blessed speaker, you would not be able to count on as much as McCarthy has been able to deliver so far. I think we're aligned on this. Uh, One of the things that you've said repeatedly on this show, and I do agree with, is that whenever there's been conversations about Mitch McConnell in the Senate, I believe your line has been Mitch McConnell stabs you in the front and and not the back. And in contrast to the narrative that he is Lucy with the football and he is dangling an idea and then takes it away. He has at least, uh, I think we both agree been pretty upfront. Here's what I want. Here's what I'll do. If you'll do this, which is usually unreasonable for, for the Democrats, then we can make a deal. And in a lot of ways, especially through, the uh, midterms, he allowed for a, a bunch of stuff to get done bipartisan. So uh, McCarthy on the other side, obviously, you know, the, the the house is a truck stop and the Senate is a country club. He has always struck me as as Walter White in Breaking Bad. Like he keeps making another deal to get out of the deal that he was in right now. And, <laughs> and then you realize, oh, no, he's boxed in on this and he has to make another deal going forward. The question is. Is Gates out of bullets after this vacation motion? Well, I mean, <laughs> Gates can do one motion after another yeah. unless they, the House passes a new rule that raises the threshold for how many people you need to uh, introduce a motion to vacate. Part of the deal to get MacArthur the gavel was to reduce that number to one. Yes. Uh, and so that's why Gates can do this by himself. But you once you introduce the motion, you need a majority of the full house to actually vacate the speakership, actually fire the speaker. Uh, and Democrats can this happened with this potentially could have happened with Boehner, John Boehner, in 2015. Yeah, uh, when there was a motion to vacate that was drafted uh around the same issue. How do you how do you keep the government open? Then the Freedom Caucus types were demanding a defunding of Planned Parenthood. Uh, Boehner realized that was not going to get anywhere in the Senate and uh, talked to Pelosi's team about uh, protecting him if it, if it came to a motion to vacate. And we we learned this after the fact, we didn't know this in real time, that yeah. Pelosi was prepared to instruct the Democrats to vote present to reduce the to change the math of what a majority would constitute so therefore democrats weren't literally supporting Boehner's speakership but were making it possible for him to remain and pelosi said afterwards it wasn't because i wanted to save Boehner; i want to save the institution the institution can't function if a small band of yahoos not quoting verbatim here a small yeah. band of yahoos can decide who the speaker is or not uh so now, and but Boehner decided at the end of the day, you know, I don't want to put the, the house through this. I'm just going to quit. I'm going to quit all together. Yes, he's out. To yeah, the government open. Screw this. Uh, it's going to be nothing but red wine and growing weed for me for the rest right, of for the rest right. of my days. <laughs> and McCarthy is seems to be saying, "Look, I'm not going to kowtow to Matt Gates. I'm not going to give Democrats concessions, and I'm not going to weaken my speakership in order to save myself." I'm doing this how I do it. You want me? Fine. If you don't, fine. I got to do. Uh, which you know, is not an unreasonable approach on McCarthy's part. Uh, but I do think that Democrats, even maybe the lion's share of Democrats don't want to help him out, don't like that he's not negotiating. But I think there are enough moderate Dems, um, Trump district Dems, who are going to say, I can take this vote in sync with my district and it's going to be better for the house, better for the Congress, better for the country, better for the party 
if we keep McCarthy around. The conversation now from the Democratic perspective is concessions. So what is realistic for them to look for? Honestly, I don't know. I mean, from what I'm reading this morning, Tuesday morning, is that Democrats are frustrated that McCarthy is cutting off discussion of concessions. Uh, and they don't feel I mean, of those who are talking to reporters, they are saying they're not inclined to uh, bail McCarthy out or they're undecided. Uh, and I mean, that may be where we end up here, uh, that there's camp meeting of the minds and McCarthy is done for. I don't think that would be a logical decision for Democrats to make. Any overt concession McCarthy would take from them would be uh would would probably be catastrophic for him. It'd probably make him lose more Republican votes. Uh, and uh, poss- maybe possibly you, you couldn't get the 218 that way. Yeah. And it's not clear to me what concession is so important that it would make not having it make McCarthy's continued speakership be no longer useful. And the things yeah. that they're talking about are power sharing agreements, uh, control of the floor, more uh, uh, different composition of committees. Uh, I, don't, I've, I don't know if I've heard this, but I, potentially you should suspend this impeachment inquiry, that that sort of thing. Yeah, uh, I, 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 read, I read something about the RCCC not spending money in certain districts. Yeah, I mean, there's no way McCarthy can accept those types of conditions uh, and you have to, in my opinion, uh, you have to acknowledge, look, it's a, it is a Republican House, barely. Yeah. Uh, Republicans have to, can't make decisions that make them excessively vulnerable to primary challenges or else they won't do it. I mean, any Republican that would accept those conditions that I, I laid out to you mm-hmm. would probably be dead in a primary. Even yes. the most Biden district Republican still has to get through a primary and basically giving Democrats control of the floor uh, is asking too much. And and, and it's not like the impeach inquiry, for example, I get how it sticks in their craw that McCarthy has done this for brazen political reasons. There's no evidence to justify a full-blown impeach inquiry. But I think the subtext of that was, I can't get 218 for an impeachment inquiry. The Biden district members don't really want it. I know there's no evidence here. I know we were actually impeached the guy, but I got to go through the motions a little bit to keep the the, the nut jobs off my back. Uh, so if at the end of the day, all you get from McCarthy is no debt default, no shutdown, that's a win for Democrats. I mean, yeah. I'm not saying it's nothing for Republicans, too. I think McCarthy's making his own calculation that they're better off that way also. But that was the big fear when Republicans first took over the House, that they're going to burn it all down, that they yeah. were going to do everything they could to make America a, 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 a carnage writ large and then blame Biden for not doing more to make things better. McCarthy's not doing that. And you don't want the next guy to start doing that. <laughs> Let's talk about the next guy. Is there even anybody next in line who wants this job? What's so stupid about all this? No, nobody does want this job. It's a thankless job. Uh, it's not clear. Gates that is already anyone... getting ready to run for governor in Florida. Well, that's why his actions make a certain amount of sense to me that he wants to be the uber purist to to give a basis for his next act. Yeah. And doesn't so much care whether McCarthy is in the position or not in the position. Uh, he just gets, he wants to be, you know, the, the ringleader of, 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 of his own little uh, sideshow. Uh, but whoever is the speaker, if they have a wit of sense, needs to do the things that McCarthy is doing. Yes. Keep the government open, except that, to keep the government open requires compromise with Democrats a, and Biden, a compromise which McCarthy has already forged in the debt limit deal, a debt limit deal which most Republicans voted for. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, there's there was already this understanding baked in, like this is the best we're going to do in divided government. And to get rid of the guy who made it happen 
for an unknown person with an unknown agenda of, d- doesn't compute to me. Is there a role for the White House here? Uh, I mean, uh, I mean, indirectly, I mean, if, yeah. if I'm Biden, I mean, I would tell Hakeem Jeffries what I just told you. Yeah. Hey, I know I know this is distasteful, but really, I really don't want any shutdowns. And we're on decent. The economy is on a, is on a good track. Uh, I'm hopeful that inflation is going to keep coming down. GDP is going to be solid. Uh, I really don't need things messing with that trajectory. Yeah. Uh, and. What's behind door number three in the House Republican co- conference? I don't want to find out. This has all the hallmarks of one of those like Washington Post Biden's hidden hand in the House chaos story like a month from now. I mean, possible. I mean, I'm sure we'll get those TikToks uh, down the line. Yeah. Uh, and for all I know, Biden's not doing what I'm suggesting. He's and he's being hands off. I, I just think he has an interest in stability. I mean, he ran for president yeah. on a promise to make Washington functional, to bring bipartisanship back, uh, to get America moving again, to end the chaos. And he has succeeded in doing that against all odds. He racked up by a slew of bipartisan wins with Mitch McConnell's help of all people. Yeah. Even when the they lost the House just barely. And even though McCarthy had to uh, dance with the Freedom Caucus to get the gavel, he still worked with McCarthy to get that debt limit deal. He still signed the bill to keep the government open. He's doing the things that he said he could do uh, when many Democrats thought, well, you're promising requires Republican help and they're not going to give it to you. Well, they did. Yeah. Not every one of them, of course, but enough. So Biden needs to keep this streak going. Yeah. If he's going to be able to run for reelection on a on a platform that I delivered what I told you I could deliver. It feels Biden. It feels like there's an opportunity. If if there's any natural strength for Joe Biden, it's he wants to get in a room and talk Turkey about congressional behavior. That, that, that just seems <laughs> like something that he would want to do. Well, what's what, what I think is complicated about all this, and this, you can go back to, I mean, there were bipartisan deals with Trump, not so many, but a few. Yep. Uh, there are bipartisan deals with Obama, more than most people realize. Uh, and often in these cases, nobody wants to admit it. Yeah. Nobody wants to say publicly what they did. They don't want to have the photo op where they shake hands together and nope. they trade pens. Uh, and that's why, but that's why it's hard to know what's really going on. So right now, everybody who's talking is talking like McCarthy is done for. Yeah. Uh, the people who don't want to talk may be more inclined to, to find a, a, a path out of this and, and, and keep them around. Uh, but talking about it doesn't necessarily help the cause. So again, I, I don't want to, I don't want to go so far as like, I know what's going to happen. I just think I have an opinion of what I think is the rational course of action. And there may be a reason why no one wants to admit it publicly. Well, that's the other thing about all this is that Matt Gates is soliciting Democrats to kick Biden out. And then accusing McCarthy, or not Biden, kicked McCarthy out. And then McCarthy is soliciting Democrats to stay in. And they're both spending their entire time talking about, well, he's talking to Democrats. Right. Well, I mean, Gates is, you know, a consummate hypocrite. He's he he's accusing McCarthy of being part of a uniparty that doesn't want to, you know, take care of spending, doesn't want to solve yeah. the border, et cetera, et cetera. But what he wants is, you know, the horseshoe. Yes. He wants the far left and the far right to come together for maximum chaos. Yeah. Uh, and why is that somehow more laudable than what McCarthy is doing to work together, work with the other party just to keep things functional? Well, we will be hearing much more of this because I don't think it is anywhere close to done in Washington Monthly. Uh, and you guys got your newsletter on Substack now, huh? Yes, we've had an email newsletter for a long time, but uh, I've been penning that as of late. Uh, We've brought over to Substack, uh, so WashingtonMonthly.substack.com, and we're we're souping it up from twice a week to three times a week, and today's edition is about uh, the McCarthy brouhaha. So please subscribe uh, and get more of our insights. Absolutely. Bill Share, thank you so much as always. My pleasure. Take care.
And that'll wrap it up for us today. Politics, 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 written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. Thank Mr. Bill Share, px3guest.com. Of course, you can email us, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Find us on X, PX3 Tweets for the show, Justin R. Young for me. If you would like to share this podcast with your friends and family, you can do so, px3podcast.com. And find me live streaming on Twitch three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, when time permits, px3live.com. Letter P, letter X, number three, live.com. Do you want to keep independent podcasting alive? Because, by the way, uh, 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 I don't know if you guys have noticed this in the world of podcasting, but uh, ads are not great. And and they're continuing to not be great. They have not been great all year, and we have no idea whether or not anybody will be able to make them great again. So a lot of podcasts that you know and love are effectively independent these days, but not as many of them have been independent like we've been independent. Beyond the wall, not kneeling to anybody, foraging for our own lives and finding other outcasts like yourself who understand that there is a worth to not having any affiliation, even if it's because they don't want you. But still, we want you and you want us, and that's all that matters. And if you would like to support this show with a one-time donation, if at any point you felt, you want to know what, this is good. I'm going to give you a buck. You can do so. PayPal.me slash pay. Jury, that's a URL. You just head on over there right now. PayPal.me slash P-A-Y-J-U-R-Y. On Venmo, it is Justin-Young-20. If you have any money in your cash app, you want to troll me a buck, it is letter P, letter X, number three, cash.com. If you like to send me anything in the mail, it is P.O. Box 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. Again, that is Post Office Box one five three one eight four Austin, Texas seven eight seven one five. Now, of course, if you want to get our bonus content, there's only one place to do that, and that is takepoliticsseriously.com. It brings you to our Patreon. And at the three dollar level, you get the two bonus podcasts each and every week, a recap of the week that was, and a look forward to the week that will be, at least through the eyes of the corporate media and the political ruling class. That's the reason why the Sunday shows are there. And instead of actually watching them, you can just rely on me to filter through what the messaging is. Hmm. Pretty good. Then of course, Thursday, you get the late edition and there's a lot of stuff happening, especially this week. You're going to want it. That is take politics at the $3 level. But at the $10 level, you get that and your name read at the end of the podcast like these fine folks in the Titanic. $10 tier. Ye old pinball shop. John, DP4 Bongo, Sam, John, Edwin, Kathy Mack, and vote Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Brian, Edison, Jeremy, a dog named Checkers. Matthew, Sarah Jeannie, Dr. G. His Nerdiness Charles, Darren, Idris Arslanian, Berkeley Steven, Nomadic Terran, Molly's Delightful Demeanor, Adam, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul, Dustin, Brad, D-Laser, Nick Wood, Just Another Pilot, Middle-Aged Mike, Utah, Jimmy Montana, The Gen, D-Really, Chopper, and Andrew. You want your name as a part of the crew. Only one place to do it. TakePoliticsSeriously.com On Friday's edition of the program, we are going to talk to one of our favorite guests, Michael Cohen, about why campaigns die. I got a feeling we're going to see the campaign undertaker's bell toll a few times in the next few weeks. And we're going to talk to somebody who wrote the book on modern campaigns to see what has to happen for the blood to stop flowing in an organization like a campaign. 
Morbid? Yes. Emo? Like Jimmy Butler's headshot? Yes. But necessary for you, the listener. You demand it, and I live to serve. Till next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying, some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares to discuss. Oh, three. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.